Amen. 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 Thank you, Tom. You know, I, I, we were we met as elders on Friday. We meet regularly, and we were just talking through just um, things that are going on in our church and what's coming up. And I'll just tell you, we were, it was one of those meetings where you ever had the meetings where you're like, oh, I didn't really like going to that meeting. That was not that meeting. We we had a great time just rejoicing in how God is working among us. Um, it was. It was an encouraging meeting. I don't know if you ever go to those meetings. I know a lot of people are like, I'd just rather do away with meetings. This is one of those ones where we sat down. It was just encouraging to hear. And uh, for those of you who may come in a little late, if you didn't hear as, as uh, Pastor Kevin was talking about, just the, the, the opportunities for us as a body to come together and to share the gospel uh, with others and as, as we're meeting together. And let me just encourage you, um, if you... If you can make yourself available the uh, Saturday before Easter for the Spring Fest and what's being done there is an outreach, it's a great way for us to connect with our community, be able to share the gospel with those that may not know Christ, uh, encourage them to come and worship with us on Easter to hear the gospel again. Just want to encourage you that. There's so much other stuff going on with the, the women's ministry with C3 on Monday night. If you're not there, ladies, it'd be great for you to join. We'll meet you here again tomorrow here on campus and then uh, we got a men's fellowship this Saturday, and we're going to do a work day from 8 to 12. If you can't do the work day, don't worry about that. You know, we really want to come together, men, on Saturday and just fellowship together. This is a time to, to build relationships and to, to hear the Word of God together. Uh, just Wednesday nights, all that goes on in the children's ministry and youth and adults as we kind of earnestly start in the series on how to grow in Christ and the ladies that are meeting as well. Um, Man, if you're not part of our body, if you're not covenant member, we just encourage you next Sunday, join us. Just as we talk through all that's going on in our body, it really just personally um, gave me joy. I mean, I just enjoyed hearing all that God's doing in our body. And let me just encourage us um, to really partake of that so that the gospel can advance in our lives and, and grow and sharing that with others that may not know Christ as well. Well... Everybody loves a good sequel. Well, okay. Almost everybody loves a good sequel. Uh, you ever watched a movie with somebody who didn't see the prequels? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, as you're sitting there and nothing makes sense and they lean over like, well, I, what about that character? Where'd they come from? Well, how did that happen? Why are they doing that? Uh, could you explain this? And what do you want to do? Okay, let's just stop. Could you go and see the other movie first, and then we'll talk about this movie? You ever been through that experience? Yeah, everybody likes a good sequel unless they haven't seen the prequels. And then you're answering all these questions. Well, we're going to start a new sermon series, and I'm going to drop us right in the middle of a sequel. Um, I'm going to drop us right into the book of Exodus, and we're going to talk about how God in Exodus is the God who redeems his people. But as we're going to see this morning as I talk through it, we've got to see that Exodus is, is not just a book that stands on its own, and, and that it's actually part of a greater story that's going on, and, and we'll talk through that more. You know, as I was praying and thinking through what our next sermon series would be, um, I was just listening to our body and thinking about where are we at as a body um, what have we heard recently? I mean, a lot of factors went into this. I mean, part of it is we've been in, a, in a, a letter, in an epistle in the New Testament, and I like to balance that with preaching from the Old Testament. 
we had not gone through a narrative in a while, and so I thought it'd be really good for us to get into a narrative. I had somebody ask, and as we were talking, we were talking about the book of Hebrews, and as I started listening, I was praying and thinking, and talking to the elders, said, you know what? If you don't understand the book of Exodus, it's really hard to understand a lot of the rest of the Bible, to really understand what redemption is all about. And the reason for this is that Exodus provides the Old Testament foundation of understanding, one, our redemption from sin. What does redemption from sin look like and mean? And Exodus literally lays that foundation on the Old Testament. And secondly, it also shows us what it looks like to walk with our God. And, and so as I, I was praying about this and thinking about it, as we talked as elders, I thought, man, Exodus is where we need to spend some time. And so as we, we go in this sermon series, I just want you to know we're going to be looking at this whole concept that our God is the God who redeems his people. And we're going to dive more into that phrase and what it means as we go through this and we'll see components of it. What, is it, what does redemption mean? What does it mean that God is the one who redeems? What does it mean that we are his people? And we're going to see that the book of Exodus really fills this out for us. But this morning, my, my goal, because I'm going to drop us right in the middle of a sequel, right, is I want to give us some context and some strategies as we study, work through, and read the book of Exodus together and go through the sermon series of what we need to have in mind as we go through this. If you haven't already, turn over to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1. And, and Tom read Exodus 1, 1 through 7 this morning for us. And this is where our passage will be. We're going to spend some time this morning, but then reflecting back to the book of Genesis. Because Exodus, as I said, is a sequel. So if you're looking there in, in, in Exodus 1, 1, it says there in ESV, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Now, for those of you who have the King James, or if you have a New American Standard Bible, and you look, you'll notice there's actually a word that comes before these. It's the word now. You see, Exodus is connected to Genesis. The actual first word in the Hebrew is the word and, or now. In Hebrew, it looks like this. You'll see a little, you'll see the word here on the screen, the Hebrew word, it's actually vav, it's a single character. That little character, that vav, is actually what points back to Genesis. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. You see, we need to see that Exodus is connected back to Genesis. If you're looking there in your Bible, literally look at the page just before it as the book of Genesis ends. This is how the book of Genesis ends in, in chapter 50 and verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Right? Man, a powerful story, the story of Joseph. And his brothers are like, now that dad's no longer around to protect us, Joseph may turn on us. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command. Don't you like that? Hey, dad said. 
In our house, we have a we have a little jug. So I think I've told you before. I have you know many spiritual gifts. One of them is a spiritual gift of harassment. Um, that's not in your Bible, by the way. And um, so you know, I literally I like to poke and prod, and you know, you get bored. You got to entertain yourself. And um, so our kids finally took to when mom says when when mom says stop, you have to stop, right? So this is well, dad said, you know. Dad said what? Before he died, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Right? Don't you love it? Dad said you had to forgive us. That's what they basically say. Right? But look how Joseph responds to that. He says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I think part of what Joseph is weeping about is you don't have to appeal to dad. Joseph wept and spoke to them. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. I'm not here because God because you put me here. I'm here because God put me here. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And then notice how, how the book draws to an end. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones from here. And then it draws to a close. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. We should continue to read then what there in Exodus 1.1 where it reads, now, and it continues on the story. You see, as we read Exodus, we need to realize that Genesis is the prologue to Exodus. How many of you have ever read Genesis that way, right? You ever had the, the introduction to a sermon that's longer than the sermon itself? Oh, come on, you guys have been going to church here long enough. You raise your hand, right? Genesis is the introduction to Exodus, 50 chapters worth of it, and it introduces this book of Exodus to us, and, and here's the thing is we cannot read Exodus, independent, or Exodus independently of Genesis. You have to read them together. In fact, what we have to realize is that the first five books of our Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, which we actually take from the Greek words penta for five, and tuk, which is actually the Greek word for scrolls. And so it became known as the five scrolls, or as the Hebrews or the Jews would call it, it's the Torah, 
right? The five books of the Torah, the law or the instruction given to them. And you'll notice it's not the Torahs, it's not plural, it's Torah. It is one whole. And what we have to realize is we're reading Exodus, we're literally reading part two of five. You see, you have to treat the first five books of our Old Testament, the Pentateuch or the Torah, as one whole. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were written as a holistic narrative story to explain to the Israelite people why are who you are. Why are you who you are? And so when we read this, we have, to, we have to come to certain strategies as we read and understand the book of Exodus. And the first that I'm going to say to us is that a key strategy we need to read with is we need to read Exodus with God at the center. We need to read Exodus with God at the center, what, what I would call a God-centered reading of Scripture. Now, why do I argue this? Well, if you read the, the Torah, the, the Pentateuch, if you read those five books, it's really a theological history, right? It's history, but it's a theological history. It has something to do with God. I mean, when you, when you write history and you capture it, you have to make selective choices, right? If I, if I go to tell you a historical story and I give you every detail, you're eventually just going to say, forget it. I don't know when he's going to get to the point. Because I've got to make selections about the story that I write down. doesn't make it less true. It just means I have to select. Why? Because selecting what I write down also determines the interpretive framework that I'm giving to you. Right? If you go to the court of law, you're supposed to do what? Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, apply that to when you're in trouble with your parents. You will tell the truth, the truth that's in your favor, right? And the, the truth that, that they don't, you know, the truth that they don't even know, leave that part out, right? Amen. Yeah, that's what, <laughs> you know. As one of our sons one time ran down and said the other, this my brother hit me. Being the wise parents we were, why did he hit you? I don't know. Did you hit him first? Well, yeah. <laughs> Little important piece of context, isn't it? And so realize that in histories, when they're captured, everyone does this. You have to select things because you're trying to give an interpretive framework. And as we read Exodus, we have to read it from a God-centered view. Exodus isn't first and foremost about us. It's about God. By the way, the entire Pentateuch, the entire Torah, is not first and foremost about us. It's about God. By the way, the entire Old Testament is not first and foremost about us. It's about God. By the way, the entire Bible is not first and foremost about us. It's about who? God. And if you don't read it that way, you will come to some very interesting interpretive applications out of it. Because, as it were, we get the cart before the horse. Now, specifically, why do I argue we have to read Exodus in a God-centered way? Well, 
I've already read it to you. Go back. If you're looking there in Exodus 1, again, look back to Genesis 50. And what does it say? Genesis 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. Right? Notice those little words, but God. Right? And then what does Exodus do? Exodus is going to tell the story of God doing what? Visiting them and bringing them up out of the land to the land that, Abraham, that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So who's the subject of the sentence? God is. The object is the Israelites. What God is going to do for them. And we have to read Exodus that way because ultimately it is a God-centered story. The main character of this story is not the Israelites. They are important. The main character of this story is not Moses. He's critical. But the main person, the main character, more accurately, of the story is God. And if you don't read it that way, you will misunderstand what Moses, in writing the entire Pentateuch, the entire Torah, was trying to communicate. He is first and foremost trying to tell us something about God. And so we need to read it that way. Now, we need to realize our kind of first impulse is just tell me what you want to do. What is it you want me to do? You ever been there? Someone's trying to explain something to me, and you can't understand what they're explaining. What do you finally just say? Just, just tell me what you want to do, right? So, and I think I've, I've you know, our kids, Dion's the interpreter for our children that grow up. I would give this, this thorough, accurate, life-changing explanation to which she would summarize, he wants you to clean your room, right? No, I want you to, and I would go back in it and just clean your room, all right? The reality is that so often we just want to boil it down and say, just tell me what you want me to do. But you see, Scripture has this broader view in mind as it talks to us. It's not just tell me what you want us to do. Tell us who you want us to be. Tell us who you want us to be, God. You see... We talk about the cart and the horse. And we talk about getting the cart before the horse. But the point of using that illustration is that you need the cart and the horse or horses, right? Does that make sense? And so it's not the scripture treats this in such a way that it only tells us what to be. It also tells us what to do. It tells us both. And we're going to see this in Exodus. So we need to understand who God is because that will help us to understand who we are to be and what we are to do. And so as we read through Exodus, we need to realize that who we are and what we do are intimately and inextricably tied together. Let me say that again. Who we are and what we do, those two things, who we are and what we do are intimately and inextricably so they are tightly coupled and they are unbrokenly coupled intimately and inextricably tied together exodus is going to show this to us 
As we walk through Exodus, you will see it will tell us who we are to be. It will also tell us what we are to do. Now, as we walk through, we're going to have to contextualize that because one of the things we'll see is we are not Israelites, which gets to my second point. We're going to read it in a God-centered way, but we also need to read Exodus like an Israelite. Any Israelites in the room? If you raise your hand, you're wrong. There's no Israelites in the room, right? You're not. But when Moses wrote these, these books down, now I'll just say briefly here, I realize if you read uh, the Torah and you get to the death of Moses, just for the record, Moses did not write that part, right? Likely Joshua is the one who wrote down about the death of Moses. So, but the point being is if you look at the overall Torah, the overall Pentateuch, it is the work of Moses. He's the one that's capturing this, writing this down. But by the way, notice when you read it, he doesn't say that he's the narrator. It actually reads as God is describing this, like he's a third-person omniscient narrator of the story. That's important because it gives us insights into what's going on. And Moses writes this down, but we need to realize he wrote it to who? Israelites, first of all, right? He wasn't sitting around going, thinking, I wonder what a 21st century Gentile is going to think of this. It's not what he was thinking. He had, he had a nation on his hands that he had to write and help them understand who they are. Because, see, what's at, what's at stake here is this issue of identity and origins. Who are we and where do we come from? Notice in Genesis 50, verse 24, it says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit, and then notice what he says. He'll visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You see, Joseph just told his brothers, God's going to do this to you. And by implication, he's talking about the wider, right? He's talking, these are the leaders of this, this clan at this point, this, these tribes that would form. But God is going to work in them. And so, so he's saying, notice that he's going to work among you. And then, and then look at the, how Exodus 1, 1 through 7, the first part of 7 reads. So now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, right? Here's the you as it were, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Natali, Gad, Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, which by the way, we're going to see later, isn't that amazing? They start out with 70. It's not where they end up after a few hundred years. 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. And then verse 7, but the people of Israel. He's speaking about these Israelites. And as we, we read through and study through Exodus together, and here we've got to, be real, we've got to realize that what's going on is, is Moses is writing to these Israelites to help them understand their identity and origins. Right? That's, that's what's at stake here. Have you ever noticed that identity, who we are, is inevitably tied up with our origins, where we come from. It's amazing how important this is. That we want to understand where we come from so we can understand who we are. Right? 
Why am, why, I, why am I this way? Right? I mean, this permeates life for us. You've got the whole debate of origins. Are, are we a product of evolutionary statistical probability? Is it an intentional creation of God that, that happened from nothing? Those come into big questions, but even on a smaller scale in our lives. Look, everybody, now we can go get tested, right? You can go to Ancestry.com or 23andMe or whatever. And, and that makes money because we want to go test it and go figure out. And then, you know, we're telling each other where I'm 71% from, you know, Europe and 22% from the Middle East or whatever. I just 100% mutt. That's what I figured out. All right. But the reality is, isn't it, isn't it interesting? This is important to us, right? I mean, think about even little kids. They ask you, hey, where, do, where, does, where does my baby sister or baby brother come from? By the way, the right answer to that question, parents, if they're below the age of a teenager, is the hospital, okay? Because so, it gets way more complicated than that if you answer, if you, yeah, don't. So the reality is, is it is intimately tied up. And here's a nation that Moses is trying to help them understand, where do we come from? I mean, just, just think about this. I mean, where do we come from? Why are we the people of God? You ever thought about, why us? Why are we the people of God? How in the world do we become the people of God? Right? As we're going to see, the Passover is taught later, so they'll remember things. And, and they're sitting there and having to explain, this is why we're the people of God. This is how we became who we are. And then they, so why do we do these things? Right? Why do we behave the way that we behave? Right? Still remember in, in my in-law's house, one of the signs that, that they reminded you that you'd have to walk, you did not want to walk behind the, by this sign. So remember, you represent this family. God's telling the Israelites that, remember, you represent me. So why do we do this thing? Who are we supposed to be as God's people, right? What are we supposed to be doing? I mean, all these, these questions are about identity, you see how intimately who we are is tied up with what we do? And we're going to see this throughout the book of Exodus, that it really we have to look at what is Moses telling these Israelites? So if the first thing you want to do is read Exodus with, a, with God at the center, a God-centered reading of Exodus. And the second thing is we want to read Exodus like an Israelite. We want to see... What is going on here that Moses is trying to tell this nation? The third thing I want to say is we need to read Exodus in the context of Genesis. Right? Just as I said earlier, Exodus is a sequel to Genesis. Or look at the other way, Genesis is the prologue to Exodus. Now this morning, this is kind of where I want to spend the, the last of our time together, is just thinking through some major things that go on in Genesis that carry into in or excuse me that happen in genesis that carry on into exodus right we need to see this just just think about this if you're you're looking at exodus 1 7 right just just look there in exodus chapter 1 verse 7 it says but the people of israel were and what were they fruitful and increased greatly they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them sound vaguely familiar 
If you read Genesis, you're like, boy, it didn't take long. What does Genesis tell us to do? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And here it's land, heirs, but there it is. Oh, the Israelites might be doing what they were told to do in Genesis. Right? I mean, just think about it. In creation, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. He, he talks about this in Genesis 1.28. Is the, as it's called, the cultural mandate to mankind. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But he doesn't stop there. You remember, God destroys the earth with water. He floods it. And he starts over with Noah. And, and what does he tell Noah? And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? He, he repeats the creation covenant to them. Do this. And, and he goes on in verse 7 of Genesis 9. Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Right? I mean, do you hear the echoes in, Je- in Exodus 1-7? It, it's immediate. But then the Abrahamic covenant has this in there. God tells Abraham in Genesis 17-6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Right? There's a fulfillment going on in Exodus 1-7 of what he had told Abraham he was going to do. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Now, Look at Exodus 1-7 again. And now ask, what's missing? Exodus 1-7, what does it say about them in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 7? It says that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew, ex- and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. But it wasn't subdued. They weren't a nation. They didn't have kings. You see, what's missing here is the second part of that cultural mandate. And now, Moses, as he, as he writes this down and captures Exodus, it's missing. And now we're going to find out how he brings about, how he will subdue. That is, God will bring about the subduing of things. How he will bring about a nation. How he will bring about kings. This all starts to happen, and and this carries from Genesis. But there's so much more, and and I'm not going to, there are many themes that can carry over, and I'm going to finish by pointing out 10 of them that you can see from Genesis that carry into Exodus. And honestly, you will see that they carry from Genesis throughout the Torah, throughout the Pentateuch, and even on into the Old and New Testament beyond. But don't miss that these are centrally important as you come to the book of, book of Exodus. The first one is, we learned very, very early on in Genesis, there is only one true God. And you're going to hear this in Exodus, right? Because we're going to have a confrontation of, of, of between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. It's going to happen. But what we know that comes from Genesis is it's already been established there's only one true God. This really gets at the heart of the first part of Exodus. If you think about Exodus, it can be divided into three parts. The first part of Exodus is really about deliverance. 
Now remember, I said we need to read it in a God-centered way. God delivers his people. Right? The one true God delivers his people. That's what's going on in that first part of Exodus. It points out in the battle of the gods, there's only one true God. And he delivers his people. The second part is we'll see, not only do we see deliverance, we're going to see that they go into the wilderness and are given the law. Right? And then the third part that we'll see in Exodus as we go on is he's going to teach them about his presence through the building of the tabernacle. So when you think about this, God saves or God delivers his people, God gives his law, and then God establishes presence. That's what he does. Do you see how that's a God-centered way to see what's going on? It's not that he responded to the Israelites and said, well, I'll do what they want. No, God said, I'm going to deliver my people, I'm going to establish, or I'm going to give my law to my people so they'll know how they're to live, and then I'm going to establish my presence permanently with them. Because God does this. Remember what did Joseph say? Was it some Israelite leader that was going to lead them back to the land that, that God had promised? No, it's who? God. And this is what I mean by we have to read Exodus in a God-centered way. And I'll tell you, I'll just even on Wednesday nights, this is one of the things I'm gonna, we're going to be emphasizing. And how do you grow in a healthy way in Christ? If you want to grow in Christ, be like Him, be a serious follower of Christ. You have to read Scripture in a God-centered way. And so Genesis establishes from the very beginning, there's only one true God, which is why He should be at the center, because He is the only God. The second thing that we see is that God is the God of relationship, right? Very early on in Genesis, we see this, right? What, I mean, just think about the Genesis story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God creates, and his, his, the ultimate pinnacle of his creation is mankind. They are created in his image, right? Image bearers. And, and let me remind you the story, because it, it, it gets into Genesis 2. God saw that Adam was alone, and he said that it's not good. Do you remember that? First thing in the Bible is not good. It's not even sin. It's the aloneness of Adam. And then what we see in Genesis 3 is the breaking of fellowship with God when Adam and Eve break that fellowship. And what we need to realize is that throughout Genesis, and I could story after story, God shows him to be himself to be the God of relationship. Right? So there's a, there's a term theologically, it's called the aseity of God. What it means is the, it's the idea of transcendence. God is far away from us. He's inapproachable. He's not one of us. He's completely different. He's, he's distant from us. But what you find out when you read Genesis is that may be true in who he can be if he wants to be. But God chooses to be a God of eminence, of nearness, of relationship. You see, we need to realize that we see He's the one true God and He's the God of relationship. The third thing that we see, and, and I, well, let me point this out before I go on. Do you notice in the three parts of Exodus, you've got what? Deliverance, God delivers, God gives His law. What does God do in that third part of Exodus when you look in, in chapter basically 25 to the end of 40? God establishes his presence with his people. He's a God of relationship. This, cha- this, this carries right into Exodus. Exodus 
The third thing is that we are created to be like God and to do what he says. Right? This goes back to the cultural mandate, like talk, which again is Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. When you read in there, God says, let's create mankind in our image. But he doesn't stop there, and they are to do things. Do you see that? Right? They are to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In, in, from Genesis, we see that we are created to be like God and to do what he says. That gets established very early on in Scripture. And that's going to carry right into Exodus. Because do you remember, the first part is God delivers, right? And that third part is about God be, establishing a presence with us. What's the middle part? They end up in the wilderness, and what do they get from God? The law. God establishes with his people, this is what it means to follow me. If you're going to be like me, here's what you're to do. And so he establishes that as he gives that in Exodus. The fourth thing is that humans are inherently opposed to God. You're going to see this in Exodus, right? There's going to be some battles. The one that jumps out almost immediately to everybody is what Pharaoh's doing and how stubborn he is and the hardness of heart that comes about. But don't forget what also happens in Exodus. There's this little incident called the golden calf. His own people begin to oppose him. And so what we see is that carried right over from Genesis. You could look at the story of Genesis, right? And as it, as it goes along, is that Genesis 3 tells us rebellion and opposition is where we start. And so Exodus is going to show that to us more in this opposition that's inherently part of us as human beings. The, the fifth thing is that there's a spiritual battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Remember Genesis 3.15. There is a seed that will rise up and crush the head of the serpent. One of the things that you have to realize as we're reading the Torah, the Pentateuch, as we read through that, there is a constant cosmic battle going on. Remember Ephesians 6? We talked about the full armor of God because our battle's not against what? Flesh and blood. That's the secondary presentation of the true battle. The true battle is one of greater consequence. It's actually between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And, and that, that whole idea and that picture is going to come to play. We're going to see it very early on in what goes on when two midwives are told, kill the Hebrew baby boys. But that's at play, and we're going to see it in the battle between God and Pharaoh. One of the things you're going to see is there's, a lot, there's some snakes, serpents, literally in the book of Exodus. And that comes and carries from Genesis the sixth thing is that God does not need his creatures. His creatures need him. God does not need his creatures. His creatures need him. One of the things we learn from Genesis is God doesn't need us. The creation account stands in stark contrast to other creation accounts. There are other extra-biblical creation accounts that talk about the reason that God's created, created the humans is they needed to be fed. 
Literally, that was why they, I mean, there's others, but this is one of the stories of the ancient Near East. Well, we're hungry, so we need somebody to feed us, so we're going to create humans to feed us. Okay, that's not, do you see the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2? Why are we created? Not because God needs us. And what it shows to us is that we need Him. And so we're going to see that carried into Exodus. God doesn't need us. We're going to hear Moses like, who do I tell him who you are? And he's going to say something really profound. He's going to say, you just tell him I am who I am. And, and Moses is like, okay. Because God doesn't need Moses. Moses needs God. You tell him, I'm the God that will be with you. That's how you know you're going to succeed. And you're, you're going to see this throughout. Is our utter dependency on God. The seventh is God desires to redeem his people. So God may not need us, but you know what God does do? He does redeem us. He sees his people, and he sees our need, and he says, I'll redeem them. Is that not exactly what Joseph tells to his brothers as they end Genesis and go into Exodus? God will. That's, that's what it says. God will do these things. And so we're going to see that as it, it carries into, into Exodus. I mean, just think about, for example, the Red Sea. Okay, i got a great strategy on how to survive. I want you all to flee and get trapped up against the body of water when another attacking army comes towards you. Okay, for those of you not familiar with military strategy, not a good idea. But God will deliver you. And so now I'm going to split a sea in half, and you're going to walk through like it's on dry land. And see, what we're going to see throughout Exodus is how God redeems his people. And that carries all the way to the coming of Christ. The eighth thing is God desires to be in relationship with his people even when they do not seek to be in relationship with him. You realize that God seeks to be in relationship with us even when we as his people don't seek to be in relationship with him. What a powerful lesson that carries in the New Testament. Nicodemus asking Jesus, how in the world do I get into the kingdom of God? Well, all you have to do, Nicodemus, is be born again. How do you do that? God does it. And see, this, this idea carries from, from Genesis all the way through Exodus in, into the end of the Bible. Even when we spurn God, we see it from Genesis 3. What did Adam and Eve do? They rebel, but what does God do in response? Yes, curses come because he, he honors the covenant that he, he established with them. If you do this, you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. But God doesn't stop there. He says what? There will be a seed of the woman who will rise to crush the head of the serpent. It will happen. Even when his people act in rebellion towards him, our God is faithful and he will redeem his people. And we see that even throughout the book of Exodus. Nine is that God willingly, he willingly obligates himself to his people. 
He does not begrudgingly obligate himself to his people. He does not obligate himself to his people because he has to. He's not forced to. We're not forcing God's hand. He willingly chooses to obligate himself to his people. That's what he does. He says, I will save. Not because you are worthy of being saved. I mean, we're going to say, I mean, think about it. You're an Israelite. Why, God, are we your people? Because I willingly chose to obligate myself to you. I chose you. That's the word that gets used. Why Abraham? Because God chose Abraham. Right? He willingly does this. And we're going to see that God does that again in Exodus. The last thing is that God is the covenant-keeping God. What God says He will do, God will do. Lest we forget, even if we don't do what we said we will do, if God said He will do it, and He's not putting conditions on it, guess what He's going to do? He's going to do it. Right? If God puts a condition on there and says, if you do this, then I'm going to do that, guess what God's going to do? He's going to keep His covenant, and He's going to do it. Positively and negatively, God is the covenant-keeping God. And if you remember, He obligates Himself to Abraham. And the amazing thing about the Abrahamic covenant is who takes on the commitment of death? Not Abraham. God does. It is God who walks through. The animals have been cut in half. Abraham sleeps. God walks through and says, if I don't keep my covenant, let it be done to me as has been done to these animals. That's the picture that's going on. And so God says, I will keep my covenant. And this, this powerful idea of the covenant-keeping God comes from Genesis carries into Exodus, goes throughout to the end of Deuteronomy, but it carries itself in and on through the Old Testament and the New. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. We have to read Exodus with Genesis as its introduction and prologue. So here's the thing, as we enter into Exodus, we are going to see that God is a God who redeems His people, and we're going to see He is the God who desires to be with His people. That's who God is. He's the God who redeems his people and who desires to be with his people. And so here's what I want us to do this week. I want you to come join us. We are going to go through Exodus and we're going to look at this and see who our God is. And if, if my God is not your God, if if you have not placed your faith in Christ as I have placed my faith in Christ, if, if you're still thinking, well, maybe that God, but maybe not, I say, come join me. Place your faith in Christ. Because my God is a God who redeems His people and keeps His covenant. If you've placed your faith in Christ, but you've never declared that publicly, you've never 
gone into the waters of baptism and say, I want to declare visually through baptism that I am a follower of Christ, that I've placed my faith in Christ, then I say, come join me. It's interesting. In the New Testament, baptism is compared to the Israelites going through the Red Sea. It declares, this is my God. So if you've never followed your Lord in baptism, not baptism to save you, but baptism to declare, I am a Christ follower, I'm serious about it. Then I say, come join us, be one of us, be a follower of Christ. And if you are a follower of Christ, and you feel compelled, I, I'm going to tell you, come join us as a local body. I mentioned even next Sunday, we're talking about covenant membership. Join with us to say we will be those people who seriously follow Christ. Come covenant together with us and say we will follow together after our Lord. Join us as a body. It doesn't save you. Being a member of our local body gives you no guarantee to get in heaven. The only thing that guarantees you getting to heaven is God. Because remember, God is the one who saves, not us. And so I say to you, if you don't know Christ, come join us. If you know Christ, but have never declared that you are a follower of Christ publicly, I say come join us and be baptized. If you want to be a serious follower of Christ, as those of us that are members here at our church are serious followers of Christ, I say, come join us. We realize that it's not us. It is our God who works on our behalf. And so we want to join together in glorifying Him. So come join us. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the book of Exodus and, and Father, the riches of what we will see. We pray even now, God, help us those of us that will be preaching in the book of Exodus and through it, help us to accurately represent you as our God. To accurately show the truths of Scripture. God, because we want others to see our God. Father, use this book to exalt our Savior. That it would be true of what he said, that when he is lifted up, other men are drawn to him. Father, we pray if there be those here that do not know Christ, Father, I pray may the Spirit work in their lives now and draw them to our Lord. Father, if there's any here that have never been baptized to publicly display their belief that Christ is their Savior and their Lord, Father, I pray would they be willing to say, I want to do that so that others might know I am a follower of Christ. And Father, if there's those here that that, Father, want to join us as the Hills Church, a local body, to say we want to seek together to glorify our God and follow wholeheartedly and seriously after our Lord. God, work in their lives so that we would join together to advance the gospel. So, Father, we pray this morning when we join together to join you in the work of advancing the gospel, the kingdom of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.